Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Hello and welcome. I'm Patrick Curtis, your host and chief monkey, and this is the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Join me as I talk to some of the community's most successful and inspirational members to gain valuable insight into different career paths and life in general. Let's get to it. In this episode, member CRE Entrepreneur shares his path from undergrad to working as a brokerage analyst. He covers his shift over to the portfolio management side of the business, why he enjoys real estate, how much his pay has gone up since he graduated four years ago, and what's in store for him next. Also, listen to hear what he's investing in now and who he feels is a good fit for real estate finance careers. Enjoy. All right, C-R-E-P-E, welcome to the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Good to be here. <laughs> so it'd be great if you could give a summary of your background to the listeners. Sure. So I went to a uh, state school mm-hmm. um, that is not a top target for um, full-direct investment banks, but um, there were about four kids in my class who got there, so I would call it middle-of-the-way target. Um, and then I went to, uh, I got a, I was fortunate enough to get an offer to work for a pretty reputable one in New York City um, mm-hmm. in their equity capital markets group, mm-hmm. um, specifically within financial institutions, which was really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and I took it because at the time I was kind of just like smart kid doing smart kid stuff and that's what all the other kids were doing. So I figured, why not me? Mm-hmm. Um, I did that for two years. It was a really good, it's really good training, obviously. And I learned a lot. Um, I'd say the second best decision I ever made was doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, the best decision I ever made was leaving. Um, <laughs> okay. It, it, uh, it, it wears on you for sure. I will say that in hindsight, I wish I had stayed longer, but that decision that that's easier to say in hindsight, looking yeah. back on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, versus actually being in the thick of it. Um, after two years, I kind of knew finance was high street finance was probably not for me. Um, I just didn't have a lot of desire to do it i was actually promoted to associate early but i think at the time they were rolling out this program where they're actually making the top second year analyst associates just to keep them in retention purposes yep um but i had no interest and i kind of wanted to get like a new start in a new city i'm mm-hmm. adventurous in that regard so i i left for chicago to do uh commercial real estate investment sales for at the time the largest they had the highest uh growth sales volume in the midwest region okay um which is considered Considered a non-institutional region. It's actually a pretty good place to learn commercial real estate because you have to work so hard to, to sell your thesis because no one wants to buy in the Midwest. Okay. Um, so I, you, you, I'm sure you're sensing a theme here of me making life harder on myself than I had to. Um, <laughs> so I went there and basically did my analyst years all over again. Yep. Um, which it, what's interesting about the uh, the landscape of investment sales, commercial real estate, 
versus uh, Wall Street sell side is out of college, you can pretty much go right into it. And there are a couple like East Hill Secured, for example, will give out mm -hmm. of school kids opportunities. But yep. by and large, the investment sales shops kind of want somebody who they can plug and play and just knows how to use Excel and is comfortable in Argus and things like that. They really don't want to take the time to kind of get you up to speed on everything. But you didn't actually have experience um, in Argus or anything from your from your analyst days, your banking days, did you? I, I did not. Yeah. I obviously did not. So no, I had to teach myself that yep. in the transition, yep. which was obviously very challenging. Yep. Um, but once you get up to speed on that, it's um, it's really not that harder than anything else. So before we get um, into that, tell me about your late, your last kind of transition. Let's go back. I want to go all the way back to like your college days and kind of talk about that first. Oh, Oh sure. Yeah, so yeah. Going from college to yeah. So uh, let's yeah, let's go back. Let's let's talk about. So you know, you were at. Sorry, you were just finishing up the broad brush strokes of your experience. So you you went banking a couple of years, uh, commercial real estate investment sales for a couple of years in the Midwest, and then or Chicago. Then you, then you went west, right? Uh, yeah. And then I went west to work for a three or a ten. $11 billion uh, commercial real estate private equity company mm -hmm. headquartered in Newport Beach. Okay. Um, and I have no regrets. We focus on value-add real estate opportunities, uh, pretty institutional, just kind of your bread and butter, butter creepy firm, if you will. Yep. Okay. Yep. Okay, cool. Um, so, yeah, so that's, that's kind of a... That's a broad brush strokes. And so, yes, so back in, so back, you know, in college, you're at this state school kind of we'll call it semi-target slash non-target you're you know very few people break into bulge bracket investment banking from there why do you think first of all i assume you had a summer internship right your junior year i did not you did, did not. not okay I, so tell I me interned for I, I interned for deloitte auditing morgan stanley in new york city deloitte um, auditing what do you mean deloitte auditing i work so deloitte I work for Deloitte's accounting group, their audit practice, yep. uh, which is called Assurance. Yep. And my, the client that I was assigned to was Morgan Stanley. So I sat <laughs> Okay. yeah, one part, I think it was one park place all the way down at the bottom where the Bowling Green stop is. So how, how do you go from no summer, summer internship in banking, you're in audit to, or in assurance, to landing at a top bulge bracket investment bank full time? That's, that seems very very low likelihood um, thread the needle type of thing. Was it, yeah, why don't you just tell me, how did you actually pull that off? Yeah, so it's um, it's a funny story, actually. So I, I was raised by physicians. I had two parents as doctors. And anyone who's been raised by physicians will tell you that, like, they don't know the first place to start with regard to, like, advising their Yep, um, my dad is a doctor. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, on, on on that kind of thing. But my uncle's been on Wall Street for thirty years. He okay. was an MD at at JP Morgan for a long time. He's mm -hmm. actually worked at Bear Stearns at, in their uh, CMBS group, kind of our structured finance group, right at like the peak of the recession. So he was kind of in the middle of that. So he kind of saw it all. He was kind of my mentor through all of this, and he kind of guided me towards accounting. And then as soon as I did the accounting internship, he was just like. He basically said, look around the room, see all your friends who are becoming investment bankers because a lot of kids from my college did that. And he's like, do you think you're less smart, more smart? Like, how do you think you, you match up to them? Do you think you are doing the best with your skill set in your current role? And it was interesting because I actually, I agreed with him. Um, I thought I could do, be doing better. So um, 
I effectively decided that, okay, as soon as I got there in the middle of summer, I was going to start recruiting for full track and investment banking, which meant without an internship, I basically had to hit up every single person who would do full-time recruiting and see if I, they, anyone would take a flyer on me. Mm-hmm. Um, which Yeah, th- in that year, I assume most of the seats were filled with interns, right? They were all filled with interns. But what yeah. I was really playing for is a company that um, kind of over-assigned. So they do what, like for example, the bank that I worked at, what they would do is uh, mm-hmm. um, they basically intentionally they intentionally over recruit and then they cut back mm-hmm. so they get basically have all the in summer interns compete with each other and then the best of the best are left but some banks overdo that mm-hmm. or they have positions where they um they kind of like fall short of what they need where their expectations what they need right? yeah so there's so, occasionally a seat open for full-time recruiting. right so i, yeah. I basically did that at, at immense scale <laughs> tell me how you did that how and, did you organize that linkedin so, spreadsheets sure. what um there's all the there's always summer intern events right so mm-hmm. you can always weasel your way into that particularly for like the m a advisors so the molas evercore lazards of the world they have those all over yep um where do you find out where morgan, those are how did you figure out just your friends my friends i had a ton of kids who i knew who were also working in it and mm-hmm. i kind of just like leveraged their experience and, and basically said hey like if i could just get in i basically cold i might have sent 100 cold blanket emails to everyone just trying to get in the door and figure it out yeah um ultimately i ended up um <laughs> this is a funny story so i did that throughout the, the, the course and i got a lot of a lot of opportunities to kind of super day at a lot of places mm-hmm. but this is your senior and this is your senior year at this point right this is my senior year we're just entering the summer i had a couple of interviews entering this entering the like, summer like meaning entering the summer before, junior year when you had this uh assurance intern internship you were kind of just starting that correct yeah and so then you were like so i basically why didn't you do that before though? Like, why aren't we, why did you even end up doing that? Just cause like you felt like, Oh, I, I can't do banking. Did you not know about it earlier? I didn't. I want to know the complete, honestly, I wanted the thing that recruited the fastest. And at the time accounting and recruited in the early, early part of the fall semester and banking recruited in the, in the back end of the winter. And you I just, am aware that that has since changed, but, but you uh, wanted something. What, college. what do you mean? You wanted something the fastest. What do you mean? You just wanted a job. You wanted to lock I it down? I wanted a summer internship the fastest, yes. I was literally looking for the <laughs> quickest way to just solidify a good role that I wouldn't have to think about. Got it. Okay. That's fair. It just, just it was just kind of being naive, right? Just not realizing yeah, that. Yeah, it was, it was, yeah, not, yeah. It was okay. not realizing. And that's totally fair. I know kids, that's totally fair. I know kids who went that route at accounting and ended up very happy. And I know kids who went that route who didn't end up very happy. So it, it works both ways. But yes, I, I recruited very, very early for that. Okay. And then I got to the city and all my friends were doing this banking thing and they were actually kind of looking down at me in a very smug way. So in a kind of naive way, I was like, I can do what you guys are doing. It's not that hard. Yeah. Um, so specifically, I was able to network through Morgan Stanley because they were a client of mine at Deloitte to actually get a super day there, which was really cool. And did you um, get an offer or did you blow I up? did get an, I got an offer in their Chicago office. Okay. Um, so I, why wouldn't I, you just accept on the spot there? I mean, that's a full-time offer for Morgan Stanley? I was I I was backdooring Goldman at the same time. Okay. So 
funny story. My sister um, had this uh, classmate from high school who she who she maintained a like sort of frenemy ship with who they kind of hate each other, but they also kind of like each other. And they're also kind of, <laughs> okay. they kind of had an on and off romantic relationship. Okay. And that person worked for Goldman. So when I was recruiting full time, uh, she passed my contact information along to that person. And then through just networking through her and then the people who went to my school via her. And then eventually I got to the head desk of the uh, person who runs recruiting for my school at that school at, um, at my school, who also happened to work in the group that was needing needed a new analyst body because they over allocated for the summer. This is now in September. They flew me out for like a very like it wasn't even a super day. It was just me interviewing with like the like a bunch of people really really fast, and they made me an offer on the spot. Got it. As well. So then I had those two. Also, I had an offer from RBC mm-hmm. um, to work in New York, and I had a super day with Molus. Uh, that I did not get an offer for. And I had a super day with Rothschild mm-hmm. that uh, went really well. And then when I was leaving my Goldman Super Day, Rothschild called me and said, you know, we'd like you to come in and, and do, have one more interview, but we're pretty sure we're going to offer you. Um, but I said, I, I, it's not going to be worth your time, guys. I'm not going to take that offer. Yeah. Something I did that I don't think a lot of other kids had the ability to do in my position because I was a full-time recruit. Yeah. My recruiting process is more hidden. It wasn't lit. Like, so when you recruit as a junior for an internship, all of the, and I know this cause I was, I then went on the other side of the table and did the recruiting for my school. Yeah. All the people at the various banks talk to each other. So, yeah. you know, which kids from what schools are getting, which offers and who's attractive candidate, who's not. Mm-hmm. And that matters because it takes. There's no leverage from the per, from the candidate, so they can't tell you that they have offers at different places. You kind of know where all their offers are shaking out. Right. That makes I sense. have the ability throughout my entire recruiting process to be like, "Hey, Rothschild, I'm in New York now because actually Goldman flew me out." Or, "Hey, RBC, I'm in New York right now right. because and that, family flew me out." You think that's why that I, that's why you think you le- ended up with so many offers. Is because you're yeah, able to leverage that person. I was able person. to yeah. leverage the fact that other banks were considering me even before any banks had made an offer. Right. I never lied. I never lied. But yeah. I always, whenever I had it, whenever I was in New York on someone else's dime, I made sure every other person I was talking to knew that I was in New York on someone else's dime to talk to them and that I'm still very interested in their firm if they let me. Um, and that proved to be very, very effective. I had like 10 super days. I had, uh, i trying to think where else. I had, uh, there were some firms that just wouldn't even look at me like Evercore wouldn't even look at me or JP Morgan wouldn't even look at me. Why do you think um, that is? But that's just, the, that's the whole like, cause you said, if you don't summer in it, how'd you get a full time? Yeah. Those are the banks that tend to be like, well, I'm, you know, you don't They're even full. pass the snip test. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the, like, I, I feel like Goldman and Morgan tend to be the banks that'll turn over stones to find candidates. They don't really care about the quote unquote pedigree so much as if it's like a good fit i worked with a lot of kids from like weird schools like iowa and stuff and it wasn't because of like narcissism or yeah or uh, nepotism it was just because like they were just really smart kids who were just didn't go to target schools and got in so got it um so i was able to kind of like stir up not fake demand but like manufactured desire <laughs> to have me as a candidate yeah fair. which the number one thing i recommend to kids getting investment bank internships is make others believe that you're more attractive than you are mm-hmm. um perception begets reality and that's kind of how that played out i got really i got tell me about it, I all these super days what was different about them what was similar about them 
so this is now oof, this is dating back almost a decade but yeah morgan stanley does this thing for their super days where they put um they put you in a big room in a cubicle mm-hmm. and you sit on the part of the cubicle where you can't enter or exit and then somebody basically runs in um somebody runs into the room they like rotate who walks into the room to interview you yeah so you're sitting there the so whole time has, yeah you're basically sitting there waiting waiting for the next person to walk in mm-hmm. um i actually really like their super day process and i also really like how they cared less and goldman was like this too they cared less about the technical questions which i thought was really a good factor mm-hmm. and they cared more about your ability to think creatively i think I think we've reached a point in, in this type of recruiting where everyone can do the math. Everyone can actually do the job. That's mm-hmm. not what makes the job hard. Um, and they were more interested in like how I fundamentally thought about like finance and stuff like that. Cause they're not, they weren't necessarily looking for a cookie cutter stuff in a corner and never talk to them person. Yeah. They wanted people who could like push the envelope on thought, which I liked a lot. The and Golden so, Super Day, I was just in the office and had rotating people come in. Rothschild is, was at the time their offices. I think they actually, no, they just moved into their new office at the time. It's like all glass, like very open kind of trading floor vibe. Yeah. I kind of just like jumped around the trading floor and had yeah. like interviews with people at their desks, which I actually really liked. I was at Rothschild um, for two years. I don't know if you knew that. I did, sorry, two, I did two years at Rothschild and they were a structuring group. Oh, two to oh four. Oh, that's a great, that's a great group. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was a lot of hours, <laughs> but it was a great yeah, learning experience. It's a, it's a lot of time. Yeah, <laughs> I got. I actually got. I, I love the hours conversation. I really like working in ECM because mm-hmm. you work from like seven in the morning until about. I always had dinner, and dinner was at eight, so I worked until seven till at least eight, but prop, but usually nine. I can count the amount of all nighters I had on one hand. Yeah. I can count the amount of times I left after midnight on two probably, but like my day was a sprint. So my deliverables were much smaller in nature, but more frequent, immediate, yeah. frequent and immediate in need. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very market driven and you're really much in it. I never saw myself as someone who was going to go through SEC documents to plug numbers into a comp sheet that like, you know, no one really cared about. Mm-hmm. We had a joke. And now that I'm on the, buy side of finance i appreciate a lot more about page utilization rate like how many of the pages actually made are being looked at and the answer <laughs> is usually very few yeah um and that i kind of soured on that on the south side i was like we're doing all this frivolous analysis or what to prove that we can do it that didn't seem like there was a true value out there so um i got really lucky on the hours end like that i didn't mind after a while i actually didn't mind leaving at like eight nine o'clock at night or ten o'clock at night because i ate for free and yeah, those people became my friends. The stress of the market was a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, Tell me about why but, was there? Why was it so equity capital markets? Give the listeners just a little quick overview of like what you were doing day to day and what that what did that mean? Oh yeah, so equity capital markets is just uh, it's a product group versus a coverage group. So I sold a product, which is equity capital for institutions. Mine specifically was financial institutions, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to like advising companies on buy sell mergers, things of that nature. Mm-hmm. Um, so what does that mean? That means a lot of IPOs, a lot of follow-on issuances, a lot of block trades, things like that. I'm kind of a hybrid between a, tra- a trader and a banker. I don't actually trade mm-hmm. stocks, yep. um, but I don't actually uh, have direct access to material non-public information. I do I do have some when I'm field specific, but I don't have like broad swaths of it. Right. Um, and 
I am effectively a wall straddler. Okay. Um, so I, that, that part I liked a lot. You get to see kind of the trading dynamic, which is a dying breed on Wall Street and like the coverage dynamic. Yeah. Um, it's also not a job that you can get into to get out of. So you can't just become an ECM guy and then go work for Apollo, right? That they don't want you. Yeah. There's no tried and true exit out of that, which I, at first, like now looking back on it, I'm, I'm glad I did that. Why? But Why do you say that? Because it forced me to think differently. I think a lot of kids go into investment banking so they can leave it and go to a private equity and you know make more money. But that, but then you wake up when you're applying to business schools when you're 26, 27, and you've like never actually done anything. You've never had to think outside of the box as opposed to what you actually want to do. You're just kind of following this predetermined path that was right. out for you. I, I 100% um, agree with that. Yeah. So, right. so <laughs> I think I, it's a problem. By not being in a position where I could do that, I was forced to think creatively. And when I look at all my friends who I worked with at the time, they had to do similar things. Like I had a friend who ended up going to work for Point72 and now he works for Point72's venture capitalist company. I had a friend who did two years in my group and then switched to Australia um, and our, our office is in Australia and then did that for like another two years. And then she decided to become like a, a like a VC focused on like farmers in Australia, which okay. is like, you know, the, those are the cool things that I think finance can lead you to. My biggest trouble, my, my biggest issue with Wall Street people in general is that they're, they're very, very intelligent and they're very, very intuitive. But the dumbest thing that they ever did was stay on Wall Street. Mm-hmm. These smart people should not be spending their time trying to figure out ways for themselves to enrich themselves as much as possible. They should be figuring out time to enrich their lives and the quality of their lives as much as possible, which I don't think any of them were actually really focused on. And I say that's why I like ECM versus like the coverage side is because like, if I know if I was a coverage banker, I would have, you know, started building my LBO model practices on day one. I would have recruited with all the PE shops. I would have tried my hardest. I would have tried to get my offer before I even like knew my ass or my elbow. Sorry for the French. That's fine. And just kind of jams my way into PE and I have friends who do that. I have a friend at Apollo. I have a friend at, um, Oh God, I'm KKR, Carlisle, whatever. Yeah. The top. And not, the, not those guys. No, okay. those are few and far between. What gets lost in that is those guys only hire like 20 kids a year. Yeah. So there's really only like a hundred kids a year who are getting the like mega, mega cap fun. publicly traded bulge PE shop. Most of them are going to family offices, which are still sizable and pay a lot of money, but they're not yeah. those big guy names. Uh, I have friends who do that and they're happy and they make a lot of money, but I also have friends who didn't and those tend to be more happy. I, I don't, I don't know the right answer to that. I'm just, why do you think there's, it. why do you think that the focus isn't on enriching lives? It's on just this path of following it. Is it, is it fear? Is it, uh, just a risk aversion of the type of personalities you think that, that I think those are both, I think those are both fair points. Mm-hmm. I think, I think when you're in college and you are looking at the way to spend the rest of your life, you try to distill it down to the. Uh, lowest common denominator which is money mm-hmm. and if you look at that linearly in the short term you will end up as an investment banker but if you look at it over the long term and you think about what is the purpose of money why do i even want it in the first place what does it do for me it's a security blanket mm-hmm. it assures career success and and i think in that regard i don't again the second best decision i made was taking the job the best i made was leaving it mm-hmm. I think going in and keeping an open mind and not being trapped by any individual variable in your life um, 
you know, whether that be a, a girlfriend that you have going into it or, uh, or a desire to get to uh, PE or, yep. uh, you know, X, Y, Z. I know a lot of kids who start at not bold bracket banks who only dream was to make it to a bold bracket bank. So they kill themselves for three years to get to a bold bracket bank and they wake up and they're like, wow, it's the exact same thing that I can <laughs> tell people at bars that I work for a better bank. Like it's a very... Yeah. It's a very narcissistic world that we live in. I also know like some of the nice people I know like got out of banking. They're like, this was the greatest decision I ever made. And then like three years later, they go right back in. Yeah. Um, Why do you think they do that? Just is the money to go back to the money because they're struggling? Uh, I think there's all the money elements always there. You can't ignore it. Yeah. I just think that like ultimately <laughs> people, if you leave banking and you come back, I think it's because you thought you had a greater purpose and could do other things. And mm -hmm. then when you get to the real world and you realize that not every firm has like amazing technology that's fixed on the spot yeah. or like corporate infrastructure that's flawless in nature or yeah. like a defined pay system that works like, you know, systematically with as you rise and like all those things. Most companies don't have those. Mm -hmm. um, the, the world really doesn't operate like an investment bank where everyone is just a little bit underqualified to do their job, but on so much caffeine and so driven to like do perfection that like they're all at each other's throats. Yeah. That's not the way the world works. And yeah. if you're brought up in that culture long enough, you begin to become accustomed to it. And it's kind of like the only thing you can hope go back to. I know a lot of people who left New York for San Francisco mm -hmm. and try to do like tech. And then two or three years later, we're just like, I not for me. And then they go back to New York and they usually pick up a, pick up a job at like a, a smaller one of the smaller M&A advisors like even smaller than like the Molas Lazards of the world just mm. because they want to get back in and they like have some excuse for well this job's more intimate but more senior facing stuff like yeah, that, yeah. that doesn't matter <laughs> um, okay that's fair enough so no it's really interesting to hear your perspective about all the different paths and some of the things you said I mean what was interesting you said you almost kind of redid your analyst years when you decided to leave ECM before we hop to that let's talk a little bit about pay so is the ECM should I think of the analysts they get paid slightly less in terms of bonus since your hours were so much less um no not where I worked at least so it was pretty so 90 ish 90 ish base or 85 ish base I'm assuming and then actually when I started when I started it was 70 base if you believe oh, that and wow then... okay Here's what really blew my mind. It was 70 base when we started. Yeah. They bumped, and I started in July with our training. Yeah. And then this was in the summer of 2014. Yep. And then they bumped. That was the year that they announced that all the analyst salaries were going up to 85. Yep. First year analysts were going up to 85. So they bumped my classes to 90. Mm -hmm. um, but they didn't retroactively change like our last year. Right, which meant that the analysts who are a year below me would actually gross more than I would over their first two years than I would, um, <laughs> which kind of sucked. Yeah, and so, then the first year bonus at Goldman for analysts is pro. At the time, it was prorated and paid in February, but given to you in, and you knew what it was in December, but it was paid to you in February. Yeah, yeah. And then the same was true the next year, and then the year after I left, they actually moved it to the summer so that kids couldn't leave as early yeah i know you know it's interesting you were kind of you were there at this time when there was really a lot of focus it's still an issue for a lot of the banks with attrition right and so you see this dramatic bump in pay and base pay and analyst to associate direct promotes in these um you know there were certain high profile like deaths in the media of kids who were like interns and b of a and all this stuff so there was a lot of like these programs coming out like pencils down fridays to be out of the office 
weekends, you know, one weekend off per month, stuff like that. Do you feel like that was, was that instituted around when you were there and was it actually followed? Yeah. Was it followed? The Saturday, the Saturday policy was instituted the year before I got there and it was followed. It was followed. And the only reason it, it, the Saturday policy was the nine on Sunday to nine on were the, the M- nine, did the M&A, did the kids in, did the kids in the coverage groups get that or? No, it was, it was all groups. Okay. Wow. Capital markets is a little bit more flexible because like what we do is on a dime. So like right. hours of board and moments of fair, if I needed to go in on Saturday to get something done, I was going in to get it done. Yeah. Um, but, but that, those were few and far between and email traffic really slowed down on Saturday, which was great. Um, but if I, I woke, I can remember a handful of mornings where I woke up on Saturday and my phone was just beeping red and I just was like shitting my pants. Like, Oh my God, something terrible must have happened. Um, <laughs> Cause it's a market driven, it's a market driven job. So if something's happening on the weekend, it means that there's an internal thing going on, which is worse than an external thing. Um, Tell me, what do you mean by that? What do you mean internal thing? Like, and what I did, if, uh, if my email, if my inbox was filling up or my BlackBerry was ringing off the hook after market hours and non-market hours, that was a really bad sign. That meant that something, some deliverable, some issue, some matter needed to be addressed right away between now and the next time the market opened. Right. Um, I distinctly remember a couple of like overnight trades that just like kept me there all night. And that was just like really annoying. <laughs> the difference between being a coverage banker and pulling an all-nighter and being a capital markets banker and pulling an all-nighter mm-hmm. is a coverage banker has about usually usually has multiple down periods during a day, right? So that morning stretch from like 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. is usually pretty light. Yeah, and that evening stretch from like 4 p.m. to like 7 or 8 p.m. is usually pretty light mm-hmm. um, because those are you're in between turns of comments. Yeah. When the markets opened, my day was over. Like that, I I was fixated at my desk. I ate ninety nine point nine percent of my meals at my desk. I had fifty percent of them like brought to my desk because I couldn't get off. Yeah. So if I'm pulling an all nighter, it means I have to be there. Otherwise, I wouldn't grinding my face off. And then as soon as the market starts, which is for us was about seven thirty, you in the can't morning, leave. Yeah. Um, it just starts again as a dead sprint. Yeah. So where all-nighter why is it so ecm you know if you're doing ipos and doing all this other stuff why is it such a sprint why are you so tied to the markets was it something just the way your firm worked um it was i think it was because you were straddling you're straddling kind of both to the trading side and it's a little bit of of straddling both so i'll give you an example yeah where i worked anytime an md was walking into a meeting where they would meet with a publicly traded client Mm -hmm. we it was mandated in my group specifically that they had a they had a very long update email sent to them. It was at least a three-page email, and we had an exact template for it that walked through all of market commentary, knowledge, current comps, trading, where they're trading at any given moment, Bloomberg, snapshots, so whatever. They, so they sound really so smart. The M- <laughs> yeah, so the MD can walk right in and be like, oh, I see that your comps are trading down exactly X percent today relative to the S&P, but you're trading at XYZ, this Bloomberg article, like, and just immediately beat, like, spit out knowledge to just be like, I'm an expert on you. Right. Um, when in theory, they're not. It's, we're, we're manufactured intelligence. Right. Um, so that's, that's really like interesting. one example of having to be on the moment. When you price offerings, which obviously doesn't happen every day, but when you price offerings, mm-hmm. there is something called a pricing book that has to get out to the client the minute. So the market closes, syndications are made, allocations are made in the, in the syndication book. Yep. And then there's a pricing book. It's about a 20-page book that's sent out to clients 
and basically goes through all of the operating mechanics of their deal with various charts. It's, it's a, we had the Excel down to the science. Mm-hmm. It was a plug and play. Yeah. But you pretty much had 15 minutes to get a book to your VP to review and then another five to get it out. Wow. Okay. So it's, yeah. so it was a sprint. It was really, you learn how to move on your feet and think on your feet, which is good. And, and I, you know, to this day, if I get an email, I want to respond immediately. And as I've aged in my career, I found out that like sometimes delaying your responses to emails and emotions is a better way of approaching work. Yeah. Um, but I was trained in that culture of like immediateness. Yeah. Um, has that been beneficial is, again, at all in your career? Uh, it has. Yes. Mm-hmm. I've always been told since I've left that the pace of my work product is considerably faster than that of uh, other associates that I were or analysts or associates that I've worked with. So tell me about that transition out of ECM to this, uh, you know, commercial real and, estate or yeah. investment sales firm in the Midwest. Tell me, you said you kind of did your analyst years over again. Why did you make it so hard on yourself? Was the were the hours <laughs> similar, long, you know, seventy hour weeks or so again, or what was it like there? Yeah. So investment sales brokerage is a really interesting transition. So unlike a bank. I think people lose sight of how a bank makes money when they're in when they're in investment banking. Mm-hmm. Um, banks get retainers to engage clients, but they mainly get paid on fees to yep. transact right. or to underwrite or to sell. Like they don't make money unless capital switches hands. But because the firm operates on such immense scale, there's these large capital reserves and pe- and salaries can always be paid. So that's why there's this like base bonus program that works really well. Right. Uh, brokerage companies only get paid when money moves hands and they're operating usually in very very small teams um so there's no like capital surplus to pay salaries it's not how it works you only get paid if the buildings sell so there's this now there's this like pressure on well i only want to take deals that i can sell and so that puts a a pricing pressure on salaries and things like that which is interesting Mm -hmm. um so you took a pay cut you took a pay cut going uh, actually weirdly enough I did not. For the mm-hmm. two years I did investment sales in Chicago, my team had its two best years. Got it. So y- it, you were it clearing. Nothing, it has nothing to do with me. You're clearing. <laughs> you were clearing like two hundred, two fifty, there. No, 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 no. Okay. I was in the I was in the mid, the high one hundred. Okay. But I was only analyst at, at Goldman, and I was in the seventy bracket for a year. So like. Yeah. I was true. Okay, so you, you were you were low you were low hundred you were low hundreds first year at at uh, Goldman, then kind of mid hundreds, um, and then you kinda yeah. got to high hundreds by this, you know, you're still an analyst, senior analyst, but you're still an analyst uh, at this um, Right. I was at mid I I I was at mid mid and the cost okay. of living in Chicago is considerably cheaper than New York, so I was living a lot more nice wealthy, if that yeah. makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You felt wealthier for sure. Okay. And I felt yeah. So tell me, that's kind of a uh, tell me what your day to day was like at institutional brokerage sales. I mean, I know, I know very little about it. So if you can explain to the listeners what what does that even mean? What were you doing? Sure. So institutional brokerage sales is it, think about it as M and A advisory, but you're only advising on sales. So no, not mergers or acquisitions. So you're only advising com- uh, companies, and by companies, I mean sponsors of commercial real estate assets on how much there is worth when you're taking it to market. So you're trying to build a market around them at the highest possible price, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in Chicago, which I really liked, we covered the entirety of the Midwest. Now, the Midwest from an institutional standpoint is a very weak market, but it was good to at least see Chicago versus St. Louis versus 
Louisville versus Milwaukee versus Minneapolis versus Detroit, like different markets trade on different fundamentals. So you actually learn a lot about different cities. Okay. Um, the day-to-day is, is that you're, you're helping institutional clients and their disposition efforts across the Midwest region. Mm-hmm. So they're trying to get rid of, so they're trying to get rid of, you know, whatever these portfolios of, of commercial real estate that they have off the books. And so you not, not port, not portfolios, portfolio sales, like reach to reach sales. That would be like a real estate investment banking practice. Okay. I'm more like someone owns, you know, a hundred million dollar asset in downtown Chicago Got and it. they want to sell it. Right? Got it. And Phenomenal. so then you're I you're trying office. to figure out yeah. the, all the buyer all the buyers for this specific type of asset and that's including right. Yeah. Okay. So who are you you're building out the buyer list, you're building out it you're it's very similar to banking in a way. It's it is very similar. The only thing is that the financial modeling is considerably less um technical uh time intensive. Okay. And real estate as an asset class is a it's a capital allocation game. Mm-hmm. So if I revalue, let's say, a core building in downtown Chicago that has a current return of like 6%, mm-hmm. we are basically going out and looking for money that has cost the capital cheaper than 6 that has a mandate to invest in core real estate acquisitions in Chicago, right? So that's pension funds or insurance vehicles, whatever. Um, and, you know, that we're basically aligning an investment with the capital. It's not unlike how investment banking works the only difference is like in investment banking if you took a, a regional bank to market right and mm-hmm. uh, and you put together a sim and did all those things yeah you would actually look at other regional banks who could buy that bank or merge with that bank yeah um and private equity companies right yeah we're just looking for effectively private equity. we're just looking for people who need certain returns and they manage real estate and this is where they want to put their capital got it okay um, makes sense so there's less of a like a strategic buyer kind of element. You occasionally get a user sale, but that's few and far between. Um, why? That's where, like, why? Go- why go to real estate? Like what? Uh, what prompted you to think like even to apply to this job? And like let's let's go back a little bit to like the whole process of like leaving. You said you got the early associate promote. Too. I did. I got this. I, I have a little bit of a convoluted story. I got the early associate promote. Yeah. Um, my entire two years at Goldman, I or. I'm not even sure I can name the bank, but my entire two years there, um, I was in a long distance relationship with a girl who lived in Chicago. So I actually quit that job and moved to Chicago for her and switched into real estate at the same time. Uh, um, so there was a romantic driver to what ultimately ended up being a real estate career, but I actually took to real estate. I liked it. Uh-huh. Um, and that's kind of how that transition went. It was atypical, but I could have stayed and been an associate there. I had a, I, I, I was the only one in my analyst class who rejected the associate promote, mm-hmm. um, which in hindsight, I should have stayed at least one more year, but mm-hmm. hindsight's 50, 50, because those kids are still probably in New York where it's really cold and I'm in Southern California. Valuing <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. So yeah, this, this position was kind of like you redid your analyst stint. I would argue right. it's an asset class that's maybe a little less interesting because you, like you said, there's more kind of there's less volatility. The returns are there. You're, there's less the strategic buyer things, but maybe more interesting because the assets are kind of interesting to see. Kind of you know, yeah. Um, so it kind of depends. But then the cool part is it led to your current role. Yeah. So tell and me I about. I would say that the one thing yeah. I liked about real estate versus banking is that there's a everyone says there's like this tangible element of real estate. I don't really buy into that. I don't even know what that really means. Like cooking <laughs> okay. is tangible. So why don't you become a chef? Like, um, I okay. like the ability, I like that it mattered that I actually had to go walk the building, see the floor, 
meet the owners, talk to them about the market, get their opinion. Real estate is driven a lot on sentiment. Mm -hmm. Um, Markets move on fundamental technicals and sentiment. Real estate is driven a lot by sentiment, a lot, a lot by sentiment. Um, So it's important. That's why everyone talks about, you know, your network is your net worth and real estate is more about networking than anything. Totally agree with that. But it's more because you need to get other people's opinions of value to determine what it's actually worth. and you needed to leave the office to do that. You needed to be on the phone. You needed to talk to people. Even conversations like this are actually important for, uh, you know, building a, a brand and a knowledge base in the space. Fair. Okay. Um, and so, I liked that part a lot. But after two years, it became very obvious that the smart people in the space don't actually sell the real estate. Mm. Well, that was one thing. And the second thing is, is unlike investment banks where there's this big brother element where you have to if you can prove that you can run on a treadmill at eight, someone above you turns it to 8.2. And that continues to perpetually go throughout your career until you either, you know, die a partner or get fired. Um, In investment sales brokerage, the people who are doing it now who are successful have been doing it for like 20 plus years. Yeah. And their name in the market is worth more than the brand of the company that they work for inclusive of the e-sales of the world yeah even the big um, ones yep that makes sense and that ma- that matters because i'm not calling you know insert brokerage shop here i'm calling per- person one person two person three right and when you're coming up in that space you realize that your career success is leveraged against the career success of the broker who is above you and unless they decide to stop working which many don't Mm-hmm. Um, you actually hit a ceiling. Yeah. Uh, very quickly, actually, depending on the size of your team. Yeah. Some people get very lucky and their team opens up. Some people don't. They get trapped. My situation, I worked for a, I worked for a four-person, a five-person. So there were five brokers, no salaries, only paid when buildings move hands. Yeah. And there were uh, three analysts on the team. One huh. really, really senior analyst who was thirty-five and clearly not ever going to become a broker. Uh, <laughs> me who is uh probably the most financially sophisticated among them but that's because of my background and my training yep um and another one who was just not qualified to do the job at all and it just became very obvious to me that they didn't need having me on their team was a luxury they didn't need it right um i could run a hundred thousand different models and promote structures and things like that that would help them anecdotally make a couple comments on a call but it wouldn't actually lead to more business and it was at that point that i realized that yeah your um, skill set wasn't, wasn't matched over- I wasn't yeah. overqualified for the job. I never, yeah. I, I don't believe in being overqualified for a job. I think if you take a job, it means you were qualified for it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, your skill set didn't match. It just didn't, ma- like, you weren't, you weren't able to add enough value based on the, the financial savvy that you had or the skills that you had. Right. Yeah. So it made sense so to move. So it was time to move to the other side of the table. That's kind of when I had that realization. So how did you pull that off? Because that's so, not an easy jump, right? That's a really, everyone wants to be on that side. Everyone, a lot of people want to be on the buy side, right? I think the goal of anyone who gets into real estate is to one day do it for themselves. So to get into the buy side allows you to be in a position to, to one day do it for yourself. Yep. Um, so, so we'll see where that takes me. But um, the great thing about being in brokerage is you have this immense Rolodex. <laughs> okay. Um, and banking as an analyst, you're incredibly leveraged against the recruiting companies that reach out to you and how well you do in those interviews. Mm-hmm. No one really cares about who you are. They just care about if you can build an LBO in five seconds, which to this day, I'll never understand the value of that. Um, <laughs> okay. 
And I thought it was about how well you talked about your deals, not just how fast you can build an LDL. But yeah, continue. I get your point. I, I understand oh, the point. I, I, <laughs> no one's ever been spun that laptop and closed it and said, uh, I know my deals perfectly. And they said, job for you. Um, <laughs> okay. I, I had a very large list of people that I had done business with because I personally was responsible for tracking bid sheets. So, um, you know, you get, you get, that's to get 10 letters of intent on a building, right? You have to like put them in a bid sheet, contact information and all the various metrics so that the seller yeah. can see and evaluate the offers. Right. If you compile two years of bid sheets across 55 different transactions and then sprinkle in a handful of broker opinions of values or BOVs, which are effectively pitches mm -hmm. um, with contact information on those. I had a role that was probably like 250 buyers and in, uh, institutional capital in the Midwest who I could reach out to. Mm -hmm. And what's great is that real estate buyers are national. They're not localized. So a lot of people I was talking to were in Boston or California or New York or, right. or Seattle or Florida. Um, so I just had this really long list of people to call. And I had relationships with them because I had worked with them before, which on, helps a lot. On so either had, You'd either done a transaction or worked with them to potentially almost do a transaction. Correct. So I had a very good plausible in to just say, hey, I want to catch up. What's going on? Whatever. Get on the phone with them. Send them my resume. Start talking. And then one thing led to another. And I had a couple offers. It was a very, uh, it was a very lucky position. I well, that doesn't sound lucky. It doesn't sound lucky if you got a few offers, right? So tell me, was the was the interview process difficult? Like, were they they just assumed with your background? I assume you know, going coming from the investment banking that you, that you had the financial chops. So what was it? Was it more fit? Most of those interviews. Yeah. So mm -hmm. it's funny. Real estate's not. It's not you know rocket science. Right. You don't have to be an expert to figure it out. So mm -hmm. people care more about how you think and less about other stuff like it was assumed when i took this job that i could work in argus that i could build an excel model that i know how waterfalls work all of those things yeah period. They, they didn't have to question me on those and that that was a big thing because they were just like this is great we don't care we know you can do this and right. if you can't do this you'll you'll be out of a job very very quickly yeah um but they were more they like i got asked in an interview once you know how many gas stations are in the united states mm -hmm. right they wanted to understand how I thought and what my opinions were on, on different markets and mm. things like that. Um, and what's cool about this shop is it's not, and I don't know how all shops are. Like I know Blackstone's very institutional in nature and they function more like an investment bank, but yeah, um, a lot of commercial real estate shops who play in that, you know, we have a, over, a, you know, 2 billion of AUM, but we're not to the like 20 billion size. Um, so we still play in like single assets and not like large portfolios. Yeah. Um, people here tend to stay longer um, because they're doing what they want to do, right? Like when you think about why you go into a job, it's the work you do, the people you work with, and the money you make. Yeah. And I feel that it's really, it's, it's, it's here. It, when people interview you, they're trying to make sure that you want to do the work that you like the people you're talking to and, um, you know, the money obviously works out so when they were interviewing me they're really just trying to get a sense for you know if we put you in, a, in an office and don't talk to you for like three months are you going to put a ton of investment opportunities in front of us or are you just going to like you know play games on your computer um did they ask you that really straight up <laughs> yeah they did we're they... very we're we're very my firm in particular is very you know we have a very siloed approach to working you kind of no one i don't come in any day with like a mandate to do certain 
deliverables. I kind of just do what I, I do. And mm-hmm. I put investment opportunities in front of the investment committee, you know, periodically, mm-hmm. uh, probably a couple, couple, three, five, four times a month. And they either decide to move forward or they don't. My job is not to make investment decisions. My job is to advise on investment decisions. But they do you ever feel really, pa- do you ever feel real, do you ever feel really passionately about a specific investment? And, you oh, pa- tons. and, tons. and then they're like arguing with you and they disagree. Of course. And of course. Yeah. But so, got, so how do you, do you, are you able to kind of convince them ever? Uh, well, I'm, I, I, I have four years of sales side experience, so I'd hope so. Um, <laughs> uh, a couple I have, yeah. A couple I have not. Some people, like some, what's interesting is the golden rule of finance applies more in real estate than in the other asset class. Key with the gold makes the rule. So um, <laughs> people here, you know, if they just are out on the market. So for example, I have one partner I work with who strongly dislikes Chicago. Like won't even look at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, um. I stop. I just will stop pitching Chicago. Yeah. So you kind of uh, you get the you get the idiosyncrasies of of different partners and what the what they like to see the types of assets they like. Yeah. Exactly. Got it. Makes sense. It's so probably at like any place. Um, yeah, but it's not like I you know my uncle works at a, a business development company where they make loans to middle market mm-hmm. uh, private equity sponsored back companies and they have like a very machine type approach to what they do. So mm. it has to have a certain t- kind of turns on EBITDA and it has to have X amount of, you know, yeah. leverage constraints and yada, yada, yada. And once so like figuring out if a company's income statement and balance sheet meet all those threshold takes like, you know, a week of analysis. And then you have to feel like you're comfortable with the company. Right. right. So there's this like big hurdle to get over just to make sure the financials work. And then you have to sell the story. Whereas, My job is yeah. more about selling the story. And selling the market and selling the, the ideas behind it. So, like, we bought a building in downtown San Francisco that was owned by a Hong Kong investment trust that uh, was out of money, did not put a single dollar into the building, basically ran it into the ground. Yeah. And it was basically trading as this like cheap option for tenants in the market. It was really, really tired, 1980s construction. And we just went in, bought it, dumped a ton of capital into it. Mm-hmm. And the numbers that we underwrote worked, right? Yeah. But we it wasn't about the numbers we just felt really good about the market and the story of san francisco and the growth of silicon valley and things of that nature in the private capital market yeah so everything we underwrote was wrong we were wrong across the board more <laughs> tenants left we were slower on the lease up the capital projects cost more yeah and it didn't matter because the market moved in our favor well above what we predicted it would right right so you were wrong so, but but still right <laughs> yes we were right about the market but wrong about the specifics of, of, of it as it applied to our building and right. that is really where the special sauce is made in real estate investments is like seeing you know other people like seeing value where others don't I, I don't necessarily think that's it i just think it's picking markets where you know no matter what happens with the building your investment will be okay but don't don't prices expected. move in that don't don't prices adjust for that potential like so you know everyone knows that you know as that there's just a huge there's so many jobs out here in the bay area D- doesn't don't the cap rates reflect that or not enough there's still like they do. pockets they of do. opportunity there was a dis- the dislocation happened between like 2012 to like 2017 or 18 okay and now we're kind of in this point where like yeah everything has traded at least once in the cycle buildings are very stabilized markets that have recovered are like you know pounding ahead like san francisco los angeles markets that are softening or um are staying soft like midwest right. 
uh, companies. They're still pricing those locations in certain markets. So, for example, New York City, mm-hmm. uh, you know, largest office market in the country, um, has its, its largest lessor of office space, which I think most people would think is J.P. Morgan. Is actually WeWork. WeWork, yeah. Tell uh, me about WeWork. What's going on there? That could have. That's, that's been crazy, a. Right? It's been a little bit of a. I think a rattling to the the whole industry, right? Just the whole botched IPO and all that stuff. But tell me, is that kind of reverberating through the through pricing and stuff like that? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, there's a cap rate dislocation between uh, assets that have WeWork and assets that don't. So interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. Which WeWork is, you can't take a local, you can't take a localized business strategy and try to make it a global company. That that market that doesn't work particularly when there's market dynamics that drive different pricing. Right. Um, fundamentals. So, for example, you couldn't, if you're WeWork, you probably can't get a lease in San Francisco right now. Hmm. And you just want as many as you can get. Like you would, you murder for a lease in San Francisco, but you can't. Like the top, I think like the top, 75% of the top WeWork and the top 10 WeWorks in the country from a profitability standpoint are in the Bay Area. Yeah. Um, New York is way oversaturated with WeWork because it just had this incredible vacancy. Not to mention the fact that retail in New York is incredibly vacant. Like the highest and best use of the re- these vacant retail shops is probably multifamily in New York City, but it's so expensive to turn it into that that no one will invest in that because it only works at immense scale, right? So there's this right. pricing dislocation, but the capital to investment hasn't been raised. And this gets back to the kind of... I'm surprised like a large, I don't know, Blackstone or some of these large real estate private equity wouldn't go in and just do it. I mean, wouldn't That's that a great be... point. The problem is, is they're too big now to play on an individual asset scale. Yeah. They would need someone to go in, pull them all together, start yeah. doing it, and then sell that concept to them. And that could take 10 years. Exactly. When you get the, <laughs> the difference between getting to scale in private equity that buys businesses and private equity that buys real estate is that in private equity that buys businesses, you actually don't limit your investment size, even though, you know, you're only taking, like Carlisle's only taking down like massive companies. The yeah. massive companies they take down can then go out and buy smaller companies in the space and roll them up. Yeah. Um, Blackstone would never go buy a $10 million vacant retail spot in New York and convert it to multifamily to make a make $20 million or $5 million profit. Yeah. <laughs> like exactly. that, that doesn't make sense for them, right? They just bought the Bellagio for $4.4 billion. Like they owned Sears Tower that they bought for, a billion dollars and they're putting 500 million into it. Like there, there's no way they can sell these assets. They have to actually take them public. Right. So there's this, there's this, this is happening across all realms of finance, but real estate is exacerbating it where the rich are getting richer. Mm-hmm. And what it's doing is it's creating this sales uh, fundamental market where there's only becoming a handful of buyers who can take down these behemoth type trades. Right. And the middle area is kind of getting left behind um and the single asset market is getting left behind because there's no one to take people out so right now the biggest issue that investment sales brokers will tell you they're having is there's no core capital in the market mm-hmm. there's no money in the market that's there to kind of buy a six percent or seven percent cash yield got it um because everyone and their mother has a med fund that pays the exact equivalent to be higher up on the capital stack mm. so this gets back to the whole real estate assets are like capital allocation versus private equity is more like tried and true like investing companies right when you're allocating deals to capital the type of capital raised affects the pricing in the market and right now most capital is was raised most capital is in one of three places it's either like i mentioned before it's blackstone it's really really large it's raising a ton more money but it can only take out behemoth 
Mm-hmm. It is raised for strategic opportunity, value add opportunistic, or high core plus. So the target return range is like 13% plus yep. in total return. So that's really hard to achieve in today's market. Mm-hmm. Or three, uh, like us, is they are these fully deployed vehicles that have appreciated considerably since they were raised, are doing very, very well on paper and cash flow very well. Um, and we're sort of in a, like a, not a holding pattern, but like we're in a wait and see. Like we, we're doing well in our investments. We're investment rich, cash poor, but it doesn't matter because the cash flow and our investors are happy. And yep. I think there's a lot of people who are in that bucket too. Got it. Well, it's really insightful. Thanks for that little rundown. Um, so tell me, what's what's next for you? You feel it sounds like you're in a great spot. Uh, I can't complain. I think I find I found a point where I'm happy with the money I make, the work I do, and the people I work with, which mm-hmm. is the first time I can say that in my career. Do you um, mind? Do you mind sharing a range of pay? Because I know you you kind of were moving up from from analyst years to your institutional brokerage, and now you're on the buy side. Was it a significant pay jump? Yeah, it wasn't a significant pay jump. No. Okay. Um, it's it's a, it's about commensurate with the other stuff. Uh, obviously higher, but not like what well, I would wouldn't like blow your socks off. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, but I also work in Southern California in you know private equity, which is few and far between. Yeah. I know Aries is out here, but I haven't heard a lot from them lately. Um, yeah. There, there is, um, there's an element of, of loving where you live and liking the lifestyle you live and not necessarily just about the wealth creation. I think a lot of people on the East Coast, and, and I think your numbers from Boston, so I'm sure you see this all the time, mm-hmm. um, because there's no, like the fulfillment, like we can argue until the, the you know, cows come home about how much you enjoy living on the East Coast, whatever, but I can just tell you objectively that having lived there, that the West Coast is a nicer place to live. Yeah. Um, the weather is nicer. It's just it's 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 an it's just an easier, more relaxing place. Yeah. Um, I'm much perf- I would much rather have that than more money in my bank account every month. Um, and just live smarter. Um, mm-hmm. that's kind of like how I think about it. So that that's kind of where I am in my. No, life. it's a like great perspective. Great it's, a, it's a great perspective. Yeah. And you know, I, I it's hard I'm from Boston originally. I'm from Boston originally. I love Boston. I'm out here on the West Coast, and I I can't say that I'm missing it too much. I mean, I I do miss it just for my sports teams, but uh, <laughs> other than that, like you know, I love it out here. I love it. I'm I'm uh, obviously Northern Cali, but um, I love uh, Southern California. My my in laws are down there as well, so I I do get down there from time to time. It's great. There you go, and you can get out to Cape Cod in the summers, you know. But yeah, you can just stay back here. <laughs> exactly. Well, listen, uh, any any advice before we wrap it up that you'd give to your younger self or, or you know, to the younger listeners? Uh, patience. Mm-hmm. I would just, I think I, people, a lot of people said this to me and it's very hard in the moment and I didn't really listen, but patience. Every second you stay in your job, it's a good job, is accretive to your career, however you think about that. Yeah. Um, I would just say patience. If you, Great. you know, um. <laughs> I had a VP once tell me, um, you know, you're young if you still think a uh, month is a long time. Um, <laughs> Fair. It, it's just your, everyone says a career is a marathon, but you know, on a day-to-day basis, you're still going to work, you're still answering emails, you're still getting yelled at. So it's hard, but the reality is, is that like, it, if you just wait, delay your response to emotions, kind of breathe deeply. I would say that's like the first thing is exercise patience. And the second thing is, um, anyone whose sole focus in life was to maximize the amount of wealth they made, uh, I found to be a very unhappy or unsuccessful person. Um, 
So I would just say it does, you know, and I'm obviously biased because I went into investment banking, so money mattered to me. Mm-hmm. I would just say diversify your your thoughts on, on how you define success uh, in your life, because I can assure you that I, I work. There's three ex Wall Street people who I work with on a daily basis, and all of them regret the time they spent on the street. So, um, yeah. So keep your eyes open. Yeah, the, 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 yeah. Make sure you're you're optimizing for the right thing in life: happiness, not not money. Yeah, it's a it's a triple bottom line. Money is a part of the equation, but it's not. It, money is a is a tool, but it's not the whole toolbox. For sure, great. I think we'll end it on that. I really appreciate you taking the time. Of course, happy to talk about it. And thanks to you, my listeners at Wall Street Oasis. If you have any suggestions whatsoever, please don't hesitate to send them my way, Patrick at WallStreetOasis.com. Until next time. Thank you.